Hi, we are in a new episode of History and Politics podcast, and we are with a great guest. We are with Cedric Barn, who, who is the co-host of uh, in uh, of the Pop the Left podcast in the Zero Books Network, and he contributes in many other podcasts, and that's probably what is his most known. But he's also a poet, and he knows a lot of things about a lot of things. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, Derek, thanks for being here. So, Yeah. Um, uh, if I may add, I also yeah. co-host the, yeah. the Mortal Science podcast on the, on the Emancipation Network. So, yeah, I spend a lot of my time on air, sort of. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I think we will start by, by, I think we are going to talk today about Latin America and particular Latin American relation with the 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 U.S. But I think we, we could start by, by talking about Latin American politics and, and, and the pink wave. Um, because it's a very curious development as, as someone who was born here in Latin America in the, in the 90s. Um, I, I was born with the, the the violence of the seeing the violence of both the Shining Path and the Revolutionary Movement to Bakamaru, and uh, and that was very curious. But um, in in a broad sense, I don't think that that necessarily make Peruvians particularly right wingers, for example. And that is a, something that could sound curious to other people. So Peruvians didn't become Cubans or Colombians or Venezuelans in, in their view of, 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 of politics per se. I think right wing politicians try to... to to make the, everyone saying even vaguely social democratic, uh, they try to link them with with, uh, with uh, the Shining Path or the Revolution Movement of Bagamaru. But in reality, I, I don't think that there is much of that link of they they talk. But the left was completely destroyed here. So <laughs> basically, because of this organization, and when I start to see things happening in, in, in Brazil, in, 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 in Bolivia, in Ecuador, even to a certain degree uh, in Argentina. So Peronism is a very kind of complex political movement that I think it's very difficult to define in a, in a, in a, in a clear way. Uh, I think it, it was interesting in some of the developments that, that there were happening, but at the same time, I think they, they were very heterodox. And I think that Particularly the, the people that are not aware of, of um, Latin American history uh, can be confused by a little of by by their characteristics because it spoke very clearly about particular developments and I think that's the case of Venezuela and I think that's the case why many leftists misunderstood the Venezuelan case which I think has a, 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 some characteristics that are very different than their cases and I think that some of that characteristics have make uh, things much more problematic. But I think we, what, what's your take on this? How, how you, you have read the, the pink wave? Well, the, the pink wave seems to me to have been a kind of natural reaction to the kind of post junta eras of most of Latin America. You know, the exception to that is, is in Mexico, which is the place I actually know the best because I live there. But, um, uh, I always felt like the pink wave was this weird kind of interesting mix of 
you know, bourgeois developmentalism, actually. And like, you know, going all the way back to, say, Perón in Argentina, um, that kind of morphed into something else that was kind of, to me, a reaction to United States meddling in Latin America and to the a lot of indigenous politics, which most people in the States just don't understand. And I, I also agree with you, Chavismo is is far more complicated than, say, what happened in Bolivia or, I mean, you know, Lula in Brazil. Um, and I think it's also led a lot of people to misunderstand why there has been popular ambivalence. I'm not going to say popular hostility, but popular ambivalence to some of these longstanding figures of the pink wave, such as Morales, um, who, you know, um, who the situation on the ground was more complicated than reported on, on the American media, whether it was pro the new right-wing government or pro Evo Morales. The, the actual the actual complications of the ground, like who advised him to step down, um, that's a lot more a lot more um, hard to deal with. And I wouldn't say I'm an expert in this, particularly when talking to people who live in Peru or you know um, your listeners who's, who in South America and Central America, but I would say compared to most, gringo leftist i know more um and i'm my only my only caveat to that as you can kind of tell by the broadness of my answer is uh that doesn't mean a lot that like i don't think most people study latin america from the point of view of of the states very seriously at all um, I know a little bit about Peru and I, I can tell you a bit about that. Like you and I've talked about it before on my podcast. Also, one of the closest people to me is, um, is a woman whose family, uh, has adjacent relations to the shining path and has very complicated, um, views about the way it is portrayed in English language history text and on the left in America. Um, so I know a little bit about that. Um, but I think the peak wave was kind of this social democratic-esque, labor party-esque third wave movement that was kind of a response to a lot of right-wing stuff in the 80s and the early 90s. And the U.S. the U.S. had lost its teeth for really suppressing popular movements. But I also think, by and large, um, the pink wave stagnated pretty quickly um, for reasons that actually vary, in my opinion, from country to country. Um, And we could talk about that. But um, does that comport with what you know? I mean, like, I I almost feel strange when you're asking a gringo to tell people, you know, who who know South America really well, you know, about their country. It's, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that, that I think the most, the, 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 the case that is more interesting of the pink wave, uh, to me personally is Bolivia, not only because it's very close to Peru and it has a very, 
the the history of Peru and Bolivia is very complicated in in their connection and and sometimes disconnection, but uh, but also because I I feel that that it has a very interesting links with uh, with uh, more uh, in some way and a kind of alternative market. So there are people that maybe not know this, but uh, Bolivia is the largest black market in the world. So literally, it it's, has the largest clandestine economy in the entire country, in the entire world. Um, in, in Bolivia, it's very easy to not pay taxes. So that is pretty easy. Right. Uh, and and that is uh, and and El Alto has been described as as the Hong Kong of the Andes. So El Alto is a is a city nearby La Paz, which is uh, really interesting. So basically, they sell everything on the streets. So from um, you know toys to clothes to uh, to TVs to to even cars. I mean, like they sell everything. So it's it's a basically a very kind of of um, Jesus Walker of recent defined the city as laissez-faire leftism, so it's it sounds very curious, but I think as far as I can tell that it has an explanation. So um, Bolivia has a, a, a one of the largest Aymara populations. Uh, so the Aymara are a very particular ethnic group because they are mostly in the high altitudes of of, of, the, of the Andean region. So they, they exist not only in Bolivia, also in Peru, in, in the southern part of Peru, and in the north of, of, of Chile and Argentina. But they are in, in the most high uh, numbers they are in in, in, in Bolivia, and particularly in, in a place like El Alto, they make the majority. And the Aymara are known for their very hardworking, uh, as, as probably as the hard, most hardworking of of the people of the Andes, and they are known to be very collectivist and at the same time have very interesting in commerce. So it's very curious. Uh, they're, they're kind of, of combination of, of interest in, in a very curious way. So I'm not really that surprised for what I, I have read about El Alto, about, you know, like the, the, it's very curious because I think it's, it's leftist in a very different way than what traditional uh, leftism could be seen because like other people like say for example Bologna is a very left-wing city in, in Italy but El Alto is a city that has been radical even in the colonial times so it was a city that 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 was the base of the of the attempt to 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 basically take over the the this the Spanish uh, uh, colony so it it has a very radical story and I think it, it, it still is very radical. So people there don't identify as capitalists, for example. It, it's very curious because despite that they are very involved in commerce, they have a very uh, autonomous identity and they, they, they are their own thing in, in, in some way. And they, they have a very, to say in some way, very independent view of, of, of things. And, and it's very curious. It's just similar to the way the indigenous in southern Mexico kind of have a, uh, from a Marxist perspective, a petty proprietor form of socialism that they that they you know um, develop. You know, they're they're very given to stuff that rhymes with uh, prodonism out of France. Is it similar to that? I mean, because one of the things that I, I gathered when I studied um, South America, and again, like my my specialty when we talk about Latin America is more Central America, but. Um, was that 
even though the Morales and the, you know, the Chavez Maduro regimes are very seen as very intertwined together, they actually work completely differently. And that, for example, in Venezuela, um, Chavismo actually did create a lot of like workers councils and left wing left wing movements at a municipal level. But the state, other than other than for a while having um, quasi nationalized its hydrocarbon assets, really um, wasn't really a socialist state, even by its own admission. Um, and in the current um, environment, the hydrocarbon assets are not as useful. Now, I know that in 2006, um, Bolivia also nationalized its hydrocarbon assets, but I, I don't know, like, it, it seems like it didn't have the same problems. Its economy wasn't as locked into a, to a very, to a una, just, you know, to a una economic model based solely off of, of oil sales, basically, the way that um, Chavez and particularly Maduro had run the Venezuelan economy. But it did seem to stall out. Um, why do you think that is? Uh, well, I, I could talk uh, uh, a bit more about Bolivia. It's a case that I know more because it's connected in some way to Peru. So Bolivia and Peru as, as Andean countries are, are countries that has uh, an important mining capacity. So um, here in Peru, there are a lot of, uh, of gold um, uh, and silver-like mines. And, and also in Bolivia, they exist. Uh, the most legendary is, is the, the, the mine of Potosí, which... It was, um, I think it has more than 500 years of function and it's still like people uh, are, are found in minerals there. So it, it has been compared to El Dorado of, of mining. It's really, and the case that, as far as I know, the case in Bolivia was that they basically raised taxes very high, but they didn't necessarily kick out all, all the, all the, in Bolivia, the, the thing that they have most is natural gas. So that's uh, what I, as far as I know, what they basically didn't kick out like the companies because they, um, so Bolivia has a very deficient education system. So it doesn't has necessarily that much engineers and, and other kind of professionals. So in some way they, they kind of need this international companies. They have they have the more know how to 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 do this fraction and things like that. Uh, in the, the the really interesting thing is that many people consider that Bolivia has the highest reserve of, of, of lithium, which is what what makes the the batteries for the electric cars. Mm -hmm. But uh, the the laws that that were set in place have stopped the the. Are make very different the new kind of investments, and I don't know if this is going to change now. Bolivia, there, there used to be, there was going to supposed to be elections this year after the more or less coup d'état by the right wing, and it was very curious because I feel that the the, the right now is is less right wing in economics than it was before, and it it has understood. Uh, the the path that Morales stood uh, to some degree, but they are very reactionary in 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 every other issue. And right, they seem both racially and religiously reactionary, but they are not neoliberalizers, right? Like, 
not in the same way as for for example maybe the um the uh Benzer presidency was yeah i mean what what people maybe don't know about venezuela is that for example the uh, yeah the, i mean probably will have should will have mentioned this but also, there is a tension in, in in Latin American politics that you mentioned briefly, like the, of indigenous issues. So, mm-hmm. in uh, in basically all Latin America, so uh, the the way to see poverty more clearly is to see you go to a, a, a poor neighborhood and it's mostly um, indigenous or 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 Afro Latino. And and that is the case in, in many countries. Uh, I, you know, there are some countries that have less Afro-Latino population, and others they have less indigenous. But in their case, like, and you go to a rich neighborhood, and it, it's almost always mostly white. In 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 some countries, and I even though things have changed, but this is kind of the most vague kind of definition. And in some ways, in Mexico, I saw the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. So one could see something that is, I think is very interesting in, for example, the, Bene- the opposition in Venezuela. Uh, now with Guaido, it, 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 it has gained much more popular ground because like uh, there, there was a, a woman before it was blonde and, and then there are people that were like more, like uh, more typical upper middle class or, or really even barely rich to say in some way that, that, and I think Guaido comes from a more professional middle class background that he so in some ways he was able to connect more with with the regular people in the way that the, the previous like you know oligarchs were enabled. And I think that is an interesting kind of development and it is really interesting. So I think also we sh- we should have mentioned that you know there is a lot of talk about like Nazis in, in Latin America, which is kind of interesting in the way that I think, uh, there are a lot of of, of, of of literal German Nazis that 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 found refuge in in, in Latin America, uh, particularly in the southern so in Bolivia, in in Chile, and Argentina, and Paraguay, and mm-hmm. and in Brazil. Um, also in northern Mexico. Yeah, I, 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 I should have mentioned that. Yeah, that's that's true also, and. I think it's uh, it's interesting because um, as far as I know, the attitudes of, of this uh, Nazis was very curious in some ways. So, for example, some Nazis in, in Bolivia, it seems that they really were interested in the country. For example, there is a, 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 a Nazi with what's known as the Hitler's photographer. So he... Uh, he was involved in making films in the Hitler era, and and he actually made a documentary about Paititi. So it, it has a link because uh, uh, there are mythologies about Paititi as well as El Dorado, and, and you know these mystical places that that the Nazis, but at least the more um, mystical factions of the Nazis, were really interested. And and uh, and I think it's it's really curious. I, I know that it is a very complex subject because, for example, Peronism was very soft on Nazis, for example. And at the same time, now Peronism is, we associate Peronism with the left technically. But the, what, as far as I know, for example, that is a very particular development. In Argentina, like Peronism in, 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 
in Buenos Aires is, is more left wing, but in the rest of the country, like a lot of the rich people in, in the province are 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 Peronist and you know are have much more conservative politics. But since Peronism is seen as a form of nationalism, it's not that they are as staunchly opposed as, as if they were if Peronism was a an internationalist socialist party like like other parties that exist in, in the region, for example. Uh, I think that in in that sense, I think uh, one could see the some kind of red brown politics in in in, in Latin America. So uh, Peronism, Argentina is a very curious case because Argentina is also famous for for having a lot of Trotskyists. Uh, so like probably many of the listeners of the show are aware of of, of Posadas, the the yeah. leader of, of, of this uh, weird Trotskyist. Uh, uh, organization that believe in, in the, the the UFOs the the UFOs were a, a symbol that that socialism exists in our galaxies and things like that that, that aliens are socialists that that we should communicate with all things and yeah so some weird things he believe and uh, believe me there are Latin American groups that believe even weirder things but that I think. Uh, for some reason, since they are translated, I think it, it makes easier for, for people to. It has been formed in a meme, but I think it, it has really interesting like politicians. Like um, in Peru, the most voted uh, uh, politician in the left the, the last election was a Trotsky. Um, in Argentina, one of the most respected leftists is called Miriam Bregman. So she's called La Rusa, which in, in English will mean the Russian because she is blonde and pale. Uh, she's of Jewish descent. And, and she is a very interesting Trotskyist because like a lot of Trots in, in, in Latin America are, are not like in, in the US like, because I see some Trots are, are really anti-identity politics and seem to you know attack the left more than than attack the right in some weird way, but they are more, uh, they can be more of a much more economic focus, but not in the anti-identity politics way. Uh, at least I don't see it at the, at the, the degree that I see um, in in some other countries. But Miriam uh, Bregman well, is really interesting. Can I, can yeah. I uh, talk about that for a second, actually? What's interesting about the U.S. Um, Trotskyist left is that it's, it actually historically was very pro identity politics cynically um particularly the uh, the the is and the um the late period sw the swp um most of those groups however have just liquidated into the democratic party in the last 10 years and so the only trots that are left are these more anti-identitarian ones it's not they're actually kind of the the minority faction but it's just that everybody else has now become social democrats um so that really does influence the thing on the on the left another thing that happened with the trotsky so and this is this is something that's relevant to what we're talking about is in the aughts during the bush administration um, a lot of the leading U.S. Trotskyists, particularly in the ISO, they really started like glomming onto this pink wave as the, you know, the the answer to world socialism. The way that like um, a Maoist in America, who were you know a very small group of people, really, 
but Maoist in America glommed on to stuff going on uh, in Latin America, but mostly in Asia and in in Africa from the you know the the sixties and early seventies national liberation movements. Um, and so there was this narrative led um, by British British trots talking to American trots. Um, you can think of like uh, Tariq Ali being one of the main spokesmen for this for forgetting like traditional Trotskyist hostilities to things like Cuba to support the pink wave in Latin America. Um, and that had also been a stance in the nineties by the last members of the, of the USSWP, um, who I think still exist, but they're like two people now. I'm not even joking. And so a lot of the reading of what's going on in Latin America right now that you're talking about comes from these Trotskyist groups because they have downstream influence on a lot of progressives in the Democratic Party. Yeah, yeah that's that's interesting. And, and I think we could connect it with what I'm going to say. Um, so I was talking about Miriam Bregman, and she's a very heterodox fraud because like, she has very, very focus on, on civil liberties, for example, and she is very focused on... on, on on abortion rights, which are, are a big thing in, 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 in not only in Argentina, but all in Latin America. And also she has been very spoken about, like condemning quickly the, the, the coup in, in Bolivia and, and the repression toward the, the, the protesters in, in Chile. So I think it's, it's really interesting. I think you, you could see in, in Latin America a, a, a very, so I mean, like, Posada is more a meme. I mean, like the, I think there are still some Posadas, but there are very few. Like I think the, the there are. It's it's very curious. I don't know how how they going to how they going to see the Peruvian case because in the Peruvian case, trots are part of larger coalitions that are not trots. Uh, so the in Argentina, the the trots are united. So several trot groups uh, run under one party. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in Peru, for example, is like they basically run in a coalition. But the coalition is the coalition that don't have either the 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 communists that come from the Stalinist tradition and the communists that come from the Maoist tradition. So in some way, in their coalition, they are kind of the more radicals in some way, um, which I think it it kind of le- lends it some legitimacy that in other contexts they may not have. Uh, but I think going to 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 connect our time with Latin America, I think we could maybe talk a little bit about Peter Camejo, which is a, a really interesting character. That I think not many in the left know, particularly the, the most younger. Yeah, um, I know all about Peter Camejo because I used to write for the magazine named after his magazine. But yes, <laughs> yeah. So I don't know what what do you think that people should know about him because he, I think he's an interesting character. Well, I mean. Yeah, so Peter Peter Camejo was a, a Venezuelan American. Um, he uh, interestingly um, is known for you know third party politics. Although he was a major Trotskyist player in the Socialist Workers Party in the seventies, um, he called for you know a a sort of crit- a sort of um, united front with dissident Maoists. So one of the things about Maoist traditions, particularly in the English speaking and French speaking world is like what kind of Maoist you're talking about really depends on when they decide to break with China. 
So we have people who support the Z, the current uh, G regime. We have people who think that, you know, you, that Mao's, you know, cultural revolution is where you model from. It's particularly popular with people influenced by French thinkers, um, etc. But Kameho actually called for um, a lot of people on that... Uh, on that pathway because a lot of the Maoists were also, you know, good on, on Latin American independence issues and, you know, opposing white juntas. Um, and so he did a whole lot to kind of bring those people and Trotskyists in dialogue with each other. Now, eventually in the, um, in the 80s, he was still really big in the SWP. Um, he was a major player in uh, Pathfinder's Past. He met Jay Posadas, actually. Weird, but, you know. Yeah, I think he mentioned that in his book. He, he has an autobiography. I think it's a really interesting uh, book for, for anybody interested in, 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 in learning more of him. Yeah. Um, the, the other thing about Kameho, though, is he was not poor. <laughs> so... <laughs> um, so um, he really worked. He was able to donate a lot of his own money to a lot of political parties, and he worked with both the in the aughts in America. So in the two thousands, he worked with the Green and Reform Party as kind of like the third way, you know, the third way to get socialists back into the American dialogue. Um, you know, and it's weird, right? Because the Reform Party could have R- Ralph Nader in it, but it also ran Pat Buchanan. Yeah, I know. So, it's, it's I mean, you know, it's a very strange the 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 uh, the radical milieu and the aughts, which is when I came up and when I learned about Kameho, um, is is very very weird. And and honestly, the American Green slash the American likely Green Party candidate he hasn't won yet, and very likely he is the Socialist Party candidate. Um, Howie Haw- um, Howie Hawkins seems to base a lot of what he's doing off of. Kameho strategy. Now, what's interesting to me about this is just, you know, he's um Kameho was very, very into, you know, um anti-imperial politics, obviously, but from a Trotskyist perspective, not a Maoist one. Um and he got in a lot of trouble. I mean, for like, I mean, he was really kind of famous for antagonizing Reagan <laughs> in the 60s. Um so, and participating in the silver civil rights marches. So, like, he's he's the kind of figure that in America would be interesting because he has both far-left legitimacy and progressive liberal legitimacy. Um, yeah, I mean, Ralph Nader um, is not that left-wing, but he had a lot of respect for, for, for Peter Gamejo, and, and he... Uh, when he was interviewing Cispan, he he they asked what books he recommended, and he recommended actually he the Peter Gamejo's autobiography. Uh, yeah, I mean Peter Gamejo is interesting because I think there is a video. I don't know if it's still online, but it, it used to be online uh, some years ago. And I watched Peter Gamejo talking about Venezuela. Uh, it's very curious, and he said that the problem of Venezuela is uh, which not going to sound as a, a surprise as you have mentioned it. He, he was a Trotskyist. Uh, 
is was Stalinist. So this is a line that that that, that it has been told also about Bolivia. So uh, many times, like we, a lot of times, particularly in the U.S., because there is a lot of discussion about new conservatives that that Trotskyists are, are have a very good training to to more or less climb power in institutions, but. More or less, uh, with the exception of Uruguay, where I think uh, uh, the the there was at least one throat group that was part of the Frente Amplio, the Broad Front, which was in power. Uh, many times, throats end up uh, antagonizing the 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 the, the pink wave, the leaders, and that was the case in Bolivia, despite that, that Filemón Escobar, which is a, a very legendary uh, uh, throat uh, in, in Bolivia, was. Uh, was uh, very important in the, in the founding of the movement toward socialism, um, and it's not surprising. I mean, uh, he he mentioned that the, the the Communist Party of Bolivia, which is is uh, the Communist Party in Latin America, has have generally um, become much more moderate, but the Communist Party of Bolivia still is very Stalinist. And so, in that sense, the alliance that basically they have with the mass the movement over socialists with the Communist Party was the thing that really angered him. And and Philemon Escobar was really opposed to Evo Morales. And and at the same time, I think in some way he like like and and in the Peruvian case, Hugo Blanco became uh, I mean Hugo Blanco in a much more explicit way became much more sympathetic to to. To some kind of even anarchist politics. So, uh, for Hugo Blanco, there was no no electoral path to victory, and and more or less the, the path of the Zapatistas was the path to to take. But uh, even in in his last interviews, he still had some Marxist rhetoric, and he is still quoted Trotsky, and it was very curious because like, um, was he a platformist basically, like a uh, an anarcho Marxist? hybridist by the end of his life um i don't think that that could be a term to define him particularly because i think uh, that that could sound weird to some latin americans uh, or even to some um uh to some americans but in the peruvian case like a lot of people talk about mariati but it was actually the anarchists that had much more pro-indigenous politics and in that way i think that 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 the fact that Hugo Blanco is very centered toward toward his indigenous identity because he also identifies as indigenous, he exposed Quechua, and and I think that makes him very different than 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 other politicians of the left in Latin America. So, for example, you, you mentioned that 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 Peter Gamejo was not poor, and and also here in Peru there was a a, a politician here on the left that was the the leader of the of the Mariatis United Party and then of the Socialist Party. Uh, was Javier Diaz Canseco, and he was actually very wealthy. Uh, he was the uh, he was the first person to create a uh, an, uh, a hotel in the in the Peruvian side of, of the of the Titicaca Lake. So um, it's a very touristic area um, in in the um, in the Andes. So I mean, if he had enough money to to create a a, a big hotel, so he was obviously he he was very wealthy. And and that I think that that kind of things have the are the ones that that play a little bit in, in the so for example Hugo Blanco has much more street cred that 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 Javier Canseco because despite it Javier Canseco has been much more important to the to the organic process of the left in in, in electoral politics particularly um, 
the fact that he was seen as a champagne socialist uh, it, it was the, the fact that, you know, the press, it was very easy for a right-wing press to attack him. The case of Ivo Blanco is still very difficult for, for many right-wingers to attack it because in the Peruvian case, a lot of right-wing journalists actually come from Trotskyism. So for them, this is still very difficult to attack him because it, he is the, 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 the largest figure in, in, in the Trotskyist life in Peru. So it's very curious, the situation, but um, in some ways, Hugo Blanco, despite being much more radical than the other politicians on the left, and finally, in a, some strange way, end up being much less criticized than other much more moderate politicians. That that's interesting. Um, one of the things I found very interesting about the American Trotskyist response is that in the aughts, in particular. Um, there was a lot of emissaries from different trot groups to these pink wave leaders. So, for example, Alan Woods, who's a British Marxist um, related to the British and American. Um, actually, it's an international movement, but it, it's, it is highly represented in America, the, um, the international Marxist tendency. And he, he would go down and speak to Hugo Chavez, like, point blank. But then you would also hear... Um, other Trotskyists, um, such as uh, Kameho, who's who is wasn't a, formally a trot in the aughts. Um, he was, you know, he was now working with third parties and not revolutionary groups. But um, you know, criticized some of the same movements that other Trotskyists were supporting. Um, this kind of led to a mess. Like my my first my first inclinations to. Uh, to Latin American politics before I lived in Mexico was during the anti-war movement. And I dealt with, um, you know, a group called international answer, which had a lot of Trotskyists and had a lot of Maoist in, in it. Um, they were kind of terrible to work with, not going to lie. They kind of pushed me further, further away from the left for many, many years. Um, but part of what used to frustrate me is like, they would uncritically accept you know, whatever line Hugo Chavez said about pretty much anything. Um, and I wasn't anti-Chavez. I mean, I thought I, I actually, I, there's part of me still has some respect for the man. Um, I don't have that for Maduro, but, um, and it became sort of just very uncritical and they didn't look at like, there was no looking at the internal the internal conflicts and difficulties of, of what was going on. I think that's actually still true. Um, it's just in the United States now, it's more with Lula in Brazil, um, particularly because Lula was so popular, um, but not looking at the problems of the, the Workers' Party in Brazil not actually delivering the kind of legal reforms it needed to deliver to be super successful. Um, now, when it comes to Peru, you Ironically, what I mostly know about Peru are like horror stories about <laughs> about people getting out of the shining path. And one of the weirdest things about the left that you and I have talked about jokingly is that there are some fringe, you know, fringe leftists in the United States who have who have really taken up shining path thought, which it's a super minority posi position in America against a super in a super minority position like. Like leftists are maybe like two percent of the population, and this is like maybe point oh oh nine percent of that. But to make up random numbers, but um, 
you can see like it leads to this kind of people going to Latin America for myth making and not actually dealing with the politicians on the ground. Because one of the things I can tell you is outside of Chavez and Evo Morales, nobody knows who these Latin American politicians are in the United States. Like even someone like AMLO in Mexico, who I knew about because I follow, like I've been studying the Mexican civil war, you know, the Mexican revolution for, you know, for like, 15 years and you know obrador is a major figure and that and amlo is in that family um americans didn't know about him till you know he won the presidency (laughs) really so um there's this tendency to make latin america mythic because they just don't know anything about it but I think it, it it has to do with with the colonialism. I mean, like uh, for example, like uh, my father is from the region of the Amazonas, uh, Amazon, the Amazon region. So I mean, it has the name for 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 the Amazons that technically were a a, a tribe in 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 the Central Asia, I think. But but since the Spanish saw naked women, they thought they were the Amazons, and so I, I mean, a lot of of this has to do with with I think a lot. Uh, some of the visions of Latin America had to do with American imperialism and, and colonialism, but other has to do with the way that Americans read also European colonialism and how it, it tried to to create categories that were kind of complex to to analyze in, in some ways. Right. And, and, and I think it, it, yeah, people in the United States not- don't understand casta paintings to, to, to make that really brief, right? Like they look at that and they're like, oh, there's more than two categories. Yeah, I think it's it's uh, I think it's really interesting. Um, for example, like uh, a lot of was made about the Super Bowl like, with uh, Jennifer Lopez and and, and Shakira, but uh, Colombia and, and 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 Mexico had very and and I mean I it was Diego um, Luna was asked about that in in, in the. Conan show, and he said that that Mexico is different from from Colombia and Puerto Rico, and saying that 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 you know all that America was represented by two women was very generic statement, and and it's true. I mean, like um, all, all countries in in Latin America has some particular kind of. I mean, for example, Peru has a very large uh, Chinese uh, uh, diaspora. Uh, so from people that 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 came in the colonial times to the present, there are still people immigrating to, to Peru. Um, so it's not weird. Like for me, it's not weird uh, walking in the streets, uh, in the streets uh, and listening to someone talking in, in some Chinese dialect. Um, so it's, um, yeah, it's, 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 there are particularities about Latin American. I think that, that sometimes uh, there are, I was talking with, with a libertarian once and she was saying that, um, a lot of people like she she lives in Texas and she was saying that a lot of people like when they think in Latin America they just think in Mexico, and I think sadly that's the the same case in some leftists, <laughs> which should kind of be even more sad than with libertarians. Uh, but I think I mean, Latin America. I, I agree. Um, I, I just I actually think what they think of is Chicano, not even Mexico, frankly. Um. Because Mexican culture is way more complex than most Americans realize too, and what they what they're really responding to is Chicano culture of you know Mexicans who were in the United States and 
who view themselves as indigenous, um, like, you know, La Raza are, are the Brown Berets, are these groups that, you know, have claims to indigeneity and they're mestizo. So some of that is legitimate, although it's also highly complicated because a lot of those claims to indigeneity are rejected by indigenous groups here. I know. I mean, it's a very controversial issue. I mean, but it's, uh, I mean, indigenous groups are generally have a little bit of mixing. The the two cases that I, I know that, that there are generally less cases of mixing is in southern Mexico and and in and in, in some parts of, of the high attitudes in the in the Andean region. So uh, I I'm sure there are different kind of explanations. The the one that I know about the high and the high attitudes in the Andes is that these cities are very high and and as far as I know when uh, uh, the it's much more common that a woman that is not from there can could have a loss of baby miscarriage if she she goes to there. So it's that way in the more high attitudes areas of of, of Bolivia you don't see that many uh, white people. Um, for example, Santa Cruz is much more white, and I think it's mostly mestizo, but has a, a larger white population. And they have, for example, Mennonites. A lot of Mennonites live there. Yeah, um, that's. Actually- True in northern Mexico too, and I've noticed that in a lot of places where I travel in Latin America, you'll see um, Mennonites who look like they're straight out of a small village in Germany, um, and then everybody else. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. Um, um, and yeah, how much how much do you think that though is part of the like one of the things that's fascinating to me about ra- racial dynamics in South America as opposed to Anglo North America, right? is that the real major factor difference is not the settler colonialism, because frankly, all of these states are settler colonial states, right? We can agree with that. Yeah. Um, um, so what the real difference must be a, a cultural one, which means it's, it's the difference between the way New Spain um, colonized versus the way... Uh, the way the, the, the English colonized. And so the English seem to have a much more binary view, even when they were going out and converting people, you know, converting indigenous people into Christianity, they had a more binary view of racial categories. And when I try, I used to teach a class trying to explain Latin American racial categories to uh, Americans. And that class was 40% Latina and Latino. Okay. So like, um, it wasn't mostly white. I mean, it was like 60% white kids. So I guess it was technically mostly white kids, but it wasn't, and nobody got it. All right. Including, um, Latinos who've been raised in the United States. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I get what you're saying. I mean, in, in, in some sense, I think the, the kind of, it, you could say the Latin American had some form of caste system, uh, although it was different from from the Indian caste system. Although it has a a, a religious component also. Um, for example, uh, the Jewish presence in, in Latin America. So uh, it was, you know, previously thought that the Inquisition was should have been read in, in the in the context of of you know religious discrimination. 
but actually in 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 Spain it was known as purity of blood. So in some way, uh, it was an antisemitism was both religious and 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 ethnically. So yeah. uh, it's very curious because like uh, for example in northern Peru there is an area called Selendin, and and there people are generally wider than in other parts of of of, of, of the Andean region because they are of Sephardic Jewish descent uh, and 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 they. They used to talk uh, uh, a dialect of Ladino until the early 20th century, but now with the massive uh, the, the, the education system going there, like they more or less talk the, the the regular Spanish now. Yeah, it's a very interesting place, and and there are places like that in, in our parts of of of, of uh, Latin America, and they have a very distinct kind of of, of culture and and. An identity that is very particular, uh, and I think it, it it also it's it's very curious. I think there are breeding more more of this uh, of these transnational histories that try to connect Spanish imperialism not just with with Spain, but for example, the first mayor of of of, of Cusco was Greek. So I mean, the, the imperialist project of Spain was also composed by by all Europeans and. And in some cases, people from other parts of of, of the uh, there there is a crypto Jewish thinker uh, Antonio Lompinello that actually hoped that that one day uh, Lima could become the the new Jerusalem. And he he was a very strange kind of thinker, uh, uh, very kind of cryptic thinkers because since it was the Inquisition, they have to to hide a lot of their their content. And, and actually, that book was was not even. Uh, published, but it was found in, in, in a library. Um, it's very curious, I think, that that categories. But while it is true that, that the, the English Inquisition has a, a religious component and the caste system has a religious component, it was also true that the Spaniards were very, uh, had a very internalized th- this kind of categories. And one could see even in the, in the Catalan independence movement. So as far as I know, there are, there are some people in the Catalan independence movement that are claiming that they are that they are of Germanic descent and they are um, and that's why they are different than than than, than the rest of Spain and and it's a very kind of of, of curious statement uh, that that several historians on the left and right have questioned because like. Uh, well, it's true that the Germanic people came at some point uh, to Spain. Spain is also a melting pot. So to Spain, they came like basically a very kind of different people. Even from 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 the Middle East, not all the people that came were were Arabs, like uh, were Phoenicians, which at that point had a very distinct cultural identity. Actually, in, in the Andean region, is is quite common referred to people dedicated to commerce as Phoenicians. So even that kind of reference is used by, by people that don't necessarily have uh, you know, education or, or anything, but, but it's, it's quite of the common knowledge that this kind of terms that, that seem to be used. Like, uh, I think it's going to be interesting Like, try to, to see what the new transnational histories that connect um, the, the Americas with, uh, uh, with, uh, with the war, even from colonial times. So... Um, there were uh, Muslim conversos also. Like uh, a lot of times, talk about the Jewish conversos, but there were some Muslim conversos. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah there are Muslim a, and Jewish Moranos. I mean, like 
Um, I'm descended from some of the Jewish Moranos, so it's you know. Uh, but the, if you look at uh, the if you look at the development of of like converso identity, more of them had to be Muslim because it was a larger population in in Andalusia. Um, so yeah, I mean, I I I, I want to speak to this a little bit because I. One is one of my passions is anthropology, and two, um, I am actually, you know, I'm I'm part Sephardic Jew, um, so like this uh, this problem with the with the Inquisition and the invention of the right race. One of the things I want to talk about though uh, is teasing this apart. There's a there's an African American scholar, Ibrahim Al Kindi, who went through all the text and he kind of um, not Al Kindi, Abraham X Kindi, sorry, got him mixed up with the Muslim philosopher for a second. Cause my mind's there. Um, Abraham X uh, Kindi, who, who pointed out the first reference to whiteness actually does come from Catholic Portuguese to justify the, the, um, the trade in Christians um, as slaves during the transatlantic period. All right. And whether the ironies of that is in America, in North America, I'm being an imperialist again, sorry, in North America, in Anglo-North America in specific, um, in the United States and in Canada, the Portuguese weren't considered white, even though they came up with the the entire white racial category. I mean, like, so this is to say that most of our racial thinking actually does have a germ in the... New Spain, New Portugal, colonial project. Before that, we don't have those racial categories. They don't exist. No one in, in 12th century Britain is calling themselves white. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the Jewish history, the Sephardic Jewish history is, is very fascinating. Uh, what you mentioned about, about Portugal is interesting because I think there there is a, a historian, Nathan Bachtel, which is a, a historian and anthropologist that is French, uh, French Jew. And he uh, argues in, in one of his books that, that at one point, there 20% of the Portuguese population was Jewish. So it's not and a small number, and actually in in, in Spain and in, in in part of the colonies in the colonial period, Portuguese was associated with being Jew, and and it's a very uh, association that, that uh, with the time it, it passed, but it was a strong association in the in the colonial period, uh, and 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 Sephardic Jewish history is, is also complicated. I think. Um, because I, I I saw that uh, I mean it, it sometimes have been very there there is one side or, or another but for example like a slave trade was there were Sephardic Jews involved in the slave trade in, in Portugal for example at the same time like uh, sometimes the people associate like crypto Jews with being light skinned in, in in Latin America and that's not always the case well it is the case in 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 that part of northern Peru. In, in other parts, like, for example, in, in Brazil, I think there is an Afro-Jewish town. There is a historian, Jeffrey Lesser, who has written about it, uh, that they basically, uh, he basically discovered it, uh, you know, like, by casualty. Like, he was walking um, in, a, in a small town in Brazil, and one black man that was walking down the street said shalom to him. And he said, like, 
why? So he, Jeffrey Weiser is Jewish, so he said how he know I'm Jewish, and he he explained the history of, of the place, and it was uh, so. Actually, Jeffrey Weiser uh, at that point was an historian there, and then he decided to to become a, a historian to study the the phenomenon of of, of Latin American Jewish history. So I think it's a very complicated. Um, picture uh, and a very interesting way. Uh, I think uh, there's um, some economic historians at the George Mason Institute have said that probably one of the greatest effects of the of the of the imposition was affecting a lot of, of the of the economy of Spain and and eventually their colonies because actually like uh, Sephardic Jews had a, a an advantage because a lot of them were um, uh, know how to read and write and a lot of the Spanish conquerors didn't so it, that's why a lot of you know in popular culture in Latin America said like the Spanish they they bring the wars to 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 Latin America and they they bring people that didn't have know how to rule or how to ride and that's why we are corrupt and that's and it's true that I think you know like um, the colonial times were a lot of corruption and, and a lot of abuses existed and and I think uh, in some way it, it has to do with you know, making so many people leave, even people that were really useful at, at some point to the crown, had really an important effect in, in, in what the process of, of, of the Latin American conquest was. And I right. think that sometimes an element that is not necessary to, to analyze. Well, one of the things that's different in New Spain and changes the racial and dynamics of settler colonialism in Latin America is that the crown could give you a red of blood that basically made you equivalent to being white. There's nothing like that in English law. And so while you talk about passing in, in the Americas, um, and, you know, like I, I'm white, but a lot of my ancestry is passing. And I, you know, um, it's not, it's not a, uh, it's a binary thing in, in the United States, particularly when you get to like the South where there's like one drop rules. Um, so you're either white or you're not. And by the laws of the South, most white people aren't white, but that wasn't really the point. Right. Um, the, the issue is I think most Americans read Latin America in the context of, of our understanding of race. So, you know, uh, my, my example for this is, um, instead of Tojava, I, I have a couple of friends from Peru, um, one of which, according to Spanish categories, would be considered black. But in, in American racial categories, just, you know, it's just, it just looks Latina. There's no, there's no difference. And that's because we don't understand the, the local racial categorizations in Latin America, even though our notions of race really come back to some of the same things. It's just the way the English played it out. And, and then this, this trans, like the American melting pot project of whiteness worked out very differently than the way it played out in new Spain with the cosmic, you know, with, with the cosmic race theory, which I, I, you know, I, your, your listeners know, but a lot of Americans don't know anything about. Um, and 
that cha- that changes you know rates of intermarriage and stuff dramatically and the other big difference is that the smallpox doesn't affect you know it 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 hits the indigenous of central america and, and south america pretty hard but it hits the north american indigenous way harder for whatever reason we don't really know um i mean one of the things we discovered about when the english landed in north america is that like one third of the indigenous were already dead from smallpox on the east coast because of the conquistadors, even though they never stepped foot there. And we've only learned that in the last twenty years from genetic evidence. So, yeah. like, that's a very it, it leads to a very different picture than what happens in Latin America. Now, you know, I think this has a profound flavor in America in Americans not understanding. Um, you know, Latino, Latino politics. And, and, and I would include in this Americans who are Latino and speak Spanish don't really understand um, a lot of the politics of South and Central America unless they were born there because of the difference in racial categories and cultural categories. Would you disagree with me? No, I, I I completely agree. For example, and and sometimes uh, sometimes like in in the US, racial categories are are, for example, very simplified and in, in in more or less skin tone. But for example, in Peru, like and in the Andean region, so in in, in Bolivia, also in Ecuador, uh, in, in the Andean regions, in in, in Chile and, and Argentina, people are generally small. So because like the, in higher altitudes, it's much more difficult to to breed. So people are being too tall will, will not be good for, for their health. So people evolve to, to be smaller, no? So um, I had, like, my grandfather on my mother's side was, was darker than other of my relatives, but since he was very tall, like, for, for the Peruvian context, um, so he was never, like, categorized as, as, as indigenous or anything. Like, he was a mestizo, but... I guess that some other mestizos that were dark would have been categorized as indigenous, but if they were short. So sometimes, like even issues that could sound weird, like like how tall or, or small one is, were directly impact to their racial category. Um, and and I think it it is something that that so for example in Peru, like one person could be in one category in one place and in a different category in another region. Because like uh, it, it changes, so Lima is a, is a city that has um, had you know since colonial times and Spanish presence. They have been immigration from from other places in Europe, not so much, but in, in other places like um, even someone that maybe not doesn't identify as white that is just a a mestizo could be identified as white in a population that that is that identifies as indigenous and, and things like that. So it, it it switches, and I think this could lead us to to the U.S. to in some way. The the issue is that I think some people in the left in the U.S. are saying that oh, in the in the future we are going all to be multiracial and and you know this uh, and racism will will disappear. I think Latin America shows that 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 this is in the case. I mean, it's it's not the case. I mean, I think it's a very naive view. I think it should be like repealed immediately because Latin America is an example that you could have a very diverse population and still have a very clear cases of, of racism. Yeah, and and the idea that say like white supremacy will be undone by what is it? 
2056 when white people are no longer the majority of the population. You haven't studied Brazil. If you, you know, if you don't, if you think that's the, the magical thing, it's just the, you know, birth rates change. Um, weirdly, that's an obsession of both American racist and American anti-racist. But one of the things about, about the whole multiracial category is in the United States, this actually leads to like a a miscommunication. One of, one of the things that Americans have had trouble understanding, like one of the leaders of say white nationalism in America is this guy named Nick Fuentes. Now, what do you notice about his last name? Yeah, he's Latino. <laughs> he's yeah, Latino. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. like <laughs> so like that that idea it, it 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 the idea that that Latino is a racial category is an American misunderstanding and actually kind of interestingly a recent one. When I was growing up in the South in the 1980s, I'm originally from Georgia. Um and the 1980s, the South was, you know, still like in Gone with the Wind tropes in some ways. And I, I, I apologize to your listeners; they don't understand American culture. But there's this romantic view of the Civil War that was still going on, and um, uh, and I, I, I bring this up because most Latinos, if they were white skinned at all, were considered just out and out white. That's not true anymore. That changed in the late 90s. All right, that uh, that changed with the migrant workers that came through the area and left, and then when it got politicized in the late '90s. But when I was a kid, like I knew people named like you know Miguel Trejo, and everybody just thought they were white. And so that that complication led to a lot of stuff. Interestingly, and this story may amuse your listeners, in 1996, um, my my school integrated its prom court. Uh, this is something that probably you don't have uh, reference for in Latin America, but you know what prom is from American movies, right? Yeah, I, I, in Peru they also exist. So, so yeah, well, in some countries, in some, in some. Yeah, they, they, it, it, it exists in in Mexico too, but it actually is a, it works differently. But they all know about the American version because of movies. Um, and so the prom king and queen, we would have a black one and a white one, and. When the racial category of Latinos started to change locally, um, because beforehand you were either white or black, and if you were Latino, you were still either white or black, and there were Latinos who identified as Chicano who came in with migrants, and that actually ended the – that was the reason why they integrated the prom court. Now, this was after formal integration. This was in 1996. Formal immigration happened in the 60s. Um, but but um, that's what did it because the changing view of Latinos as a racial category. Um, I've also said similar things about like when I lived in, in Egypt, um, you know, my, um, (laughs) my students in, in Egypt would ask me like, according to the SAT, what race am I? And I would just like raise my hand and shrug. I'm like, technically you're white, but you're not even locally. I don't know fill out what you want. And I, I bring this up because when the American leftists approach the, the complicatedness of, of Latin America, like one of the things that, that I think people don't understand, and I'm going to speak for Mexico because that's the country I really know the best. Um, like when Americans read the, the Mexican revolution, they, they, they think that's like indigenous 
and socialist versus um, versus um, first Peninsularis and then later on, you know, Creoles. And if they know that much, you know, um, rich Spanish is what they think. Um, and that's somewhat true, but it, 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 there's a lot of there was a lot of like tensions and events in the Mexican Revolution and like why um, Pancho Villa and Zapata couldn't get along and stuff was related to indigenous issues and differences of indigenous rights. Um, and a lot of issues that Americans just do not understand, even though we have our own indigenous, like we, there are indigenous people in the United States, but it's, um, it's, it's a completely different, we don't have a context for it because most of the U S understanding of both anti-colonialism and of race is binary. All right. And some of it comes out of our racial categories and some of it comes out of the cold war. And interestingly enough, um, I think most of the U S left still thinks in those terms, whether it means to or not, it doesn't have a very complicated view of Latin American politics of, of, like indigenous issues of why certain indigenous groups would side with other, with other factions, um, you know, et cetera and so forth. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting what, what you mentioned. I think that in, in some ways, uh, I think even in a, in a, so in a country so obsessed by popular culture, like the U.S., I think that you know, in some way, even the the American radical left, or at least part of it, has you know, um, get a lot of the, their tropes from from you know, like a very kind of basic, if some even lacking of understanding the, of the region. So, I mean, there is a very kind of curious issues. Like for example, when Fox News was talking about when. I think we, we, I mentioned uh, you, or you mentioned that, uh, when you interviewed me that, for example, the, the, the immigration waves that are happening more recently are, are different in the sense that are more diverse. So before it was just uh, just adult males, and, and now it's like families and kids, and so it's different. But uh, there there is someone that 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 captioned it, like the uh, Fox News that said like uh, one of the Fox News hosts by saying, uh, "Be little man, uh, walk into the water." So it's a very sexualized way to to see Latin America, and I think that that's also view uh, you know at ideas that uh, of you know people Latin American uh, people of Latin American descent that are in the media like Sofia Vergara or Salma Hayek. So it's a very kind of of, of narrow portray, and and I think of of and as I mentioned before in that has to do with, with the European uh, colonizer mentality, but also with the American colonizer mentality, like in in the way that it's very sexualized of of, of, of known uh, of people that that they don't see as a sequel, particularly on the on the more on the aspects of the far right. Although I think Fox News sometimes becomes kind of a of copy to some degree its attitudes and. And I think it's 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 very curious because I I think that in some way uh, there are a lot of people that could be surprised by, by by what I'm going to say. But Latin America has a very nerdy culture. So in Peru there is a a place that is known as uh, 
there has been no or in other parts uh, as the Latin American Akihara. So there is a mold basically only dedicated to to anime. Uh, so this idea that you know Latin American people are all day like dancing or, or you know dancing salsa and drinking like uh, actually like I think Mexicans are the uh, are the people that work the most in all the Americas. They work on average sixty nine hours uh, a week. So that's way beyond the the eight hour a day. So it's uh, people like America work hard, really. I mean, it's true that there is a very strong familiar culture, and and that is really interesting. And I think that has something to do with with the with uh, with the what I, I say about the transnational history. So um, Mediterranean culture, by their contact with with the Middle East, has a very strong. Uh, um, uh, familiar culture. It's it's very strong, and actually, one of the places where it's stronger is, for example, in Genoa. So, a lot of times when I have seen something about Genoa, I see about stories about families living together, like many generations, even when people are are generally older. So, but but Genoa, for for those that don't know, had a, a, an important Middle Eastern presence at one point, and and it was very important to the golden age and. And also, you know, I was important to, to the colonial project because at one point was part of the Spanish Empire, and that's uh, another story. But I think it, it, that familiar culture is very particular, and in some way, it kind of, uh, of sets apart the, of the American culture. Although I know the American culture is also shifting, but for example, the, the idea of, 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 of a kid at 18 years old, like moving from home, here in Latin America, is seen as very weird. Like uh, it's expected oh, yeah. that that the kid will will live uh, until you know basically it's married or so something like that. No, and, and although generationally in the United States, where we are becoming more like that, actually from necessity. Like yeah, I I I, I have seen it, that. <laughs> um, it it is much rarer for people to leave at 18. But when I was a kid, it was expected that you would leave at 18. And if you weren't, you were a failure. Um, wh- one of the things that I would say to that is, um, you know, y- your readers, uh, your listeners don't know that much about my background. I, I, I am from the American South, um, even though I have a kind of weird racial background from that region. Um uh, but I worked as a teacher internationally and as a professor internationally. I started off in Asia, but spent um, a few years in Mexico and a few years in Egypt. And I totally was was interested in how um, Mexican culture both was very comfortable to me as a person from the so- from the southern United States. Like I felt like I knew what it was. I could negotiate. It was very welcoming. Um, but also, when I went to Egypt, it also reminded me of that, the, the, the focus on familiar, community talking, even like certain things about the layout of homes was similar, um, it, unlike the United States. Um, and I, I think that that comes from the particular transnational way that, you know, um, Latin America was, was settled. You're right. Neo-Spain, I mean, the one thing people don't get about Spain, right? Like people think like Spanish culture was established when it started conquering, you know, conquering the world. But like Spain was unified only like 40 years before the conquistadors started going off into into 
into the Americas. Like it, it, it was its identity actually is totally tied into that melting pot multicultural thing. And that was even true later on with like, you know, its relationship with the Holy Roman empire. Um, and Americans don't get that because we tend to think in terms of, even though we're not uh, tr- truly speaking, the United States isn't a nation state. It's, it's a state, right? I mean, it, like it's not a single ethnicity and Americans use nation state in weird ways because we don't understand that. But, um, but we we base our models of what a nation state are off of England and France, which are weirdly, you know, linguistically homogenous. They're not really as ethnically homogenous as people think, but they're linguistically homogenous and skin tone homogenous to some degree. And therefore, that's what we think a nation state is. Um, when you look at Spain or Italy, you can't, you know, they just, they just don't work the same way. Um, and I think we, that's another thing. We bring this historical views of, of, of particularly France and England. I mean, even more than Germany, because Germany is not even unified when we become, when the United States becomes a country, um, as our models for how we understand national conflicts. And we take national conflicts as a pretext for ethnic ones. And that's not how most of the world works. Not, I mean, not just like Latin America, but like most of Europe doesn't work that way even. Um, but you know, we don't, we don't know our, our history begins in the time period of national, you know, of unified national mythologies. So we tend to take them as given. Um, and I, when you talk about a country like Mexico, I think you, people in the United States do not understand like the tensions between Norteños and Sereños, which is really tied up into, um, indigeneity, um, or like how the, how the Spanish could use the Mexica to, you know, could use hostility to the Mexica to get the natives on their side because we just like, Oh, the Spanish were European. So they must've conquered it all by themselves. And like, no, there's no way they could have done that. Um, and the American left takes those kind of myths and just goes and just generally sorts of reverses them. You know, the indigenous are good you know, Columbus is an asshole, which he is, but that's not the point. Um, and, but it's a very simplistic view. And so when you try to understand like what's going on in Venezuela, the various class and ethnic conflicts, what, how, why could both Evo Morales um, election have been legitimate this last time, but his own left-wing military personnel advise him to step down even though it led to a right-wing coup, like why that would happen. I mean, even I don't really understand it, but I know I'd have to understand the ethnic tensions and the the local histories and the different industries of the area better than I do. And when American leftists tend to, and you know, and it's bad in Latin America, it's even worse in the Middle East. They like people just do not understand Middle, Middle Eastern Tensions because I don't understand the the complexity of ethnic tensions in the area and religious tensions and the history of colonialism because they they read colonialism as a simple binary. It's a simple just you know colonized, and then they they totally misunderstand the way the colonizers um, use inter you know historical interethnic conflict. They misunderstand a lot of that. 
And do, and so when things go out of control in areas, you know, like um, in Bolivia, they, they really don't have a grasp for how it could have happened other than the CIA did it. And you and I both know 90% of the time, even though the CIA totally messes with things in Latin America all the time, it, it, it is usually not the only reason there's a coup. Yeah, I, I I I agree. I think that that sometimes like the 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 misunderstanding of 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 the ethnic divisions that there are in Latin America are really important. And I think it's sometimes also part of the cultural. Like, I think for example, like reggaeton is the one that the genre that has you know like uh, reached a lot of attention in Latin America, in, in the U.S. and and well also in Latin America. So it has become very mainstream, but. Um, the funny thing that I don't know if, if people will, will be surprised by what I'm going to say, but uh, I remember like uh, I was born in the 90s. So when I was, you know, in elementary in the 90s, I could turn on the radio and, and it was sound the Smashing Pumpkins uh, or or Garbage or, or Nirvana or, I don't know, the Cardigans. So um, I think that at, at the 90s, there was a really interesting process going on that... Uh, 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 professor of philosophy in Colombia uh, called uh, the kind of of, of of the global middle class. So, in some ways, in the nineties, like people were saying that that uh, that uh, basically it was going to construct. Uh, it, there, we are going to see the construction of a global middle class, and and rock culture was going to be one of the elements that was going to define it. So even if you could turn the, the, the TV uh, very early and there was folkloric music that, that was playing, um, it wasn't like uh, MTV was popular basically all over the region. So um, it's true that in the, in the 90s, the economic situation wasn't that good in, in Latin America, but still, you know, for, for the people that come from, you know, a more or less middle class background, still you, you could access to, to at least some basic cable package and generally that basic cable package included MTV. And so MTV was kind of, uh, an, um, you know, an approach to Latin Americans, uh, uh, to middle-class Latin Americans, uh, at, at least to, to American culture. And in some ways it kind of expanded. The funny thing was with the, with the fall of MTV, like basically, uh, reggaeton became mainstream even you know in the middle class and and even to upper middle class and even rich uh latin americans so in some ways that kind of narrative of the global middle class became much less uh, relevant to to the present so um and it's very like uh, for example there is a band which is called can say the are sexy of css which is a brazilian rock band that i really like a lot and I remember I was very sad that they never play in, in Peru. And one thing I, I heard in their interview was that they played three times in New Zealand. So it's very curious because I knew they had a lot of fans here, but still they, they didn't were very interested to play in here. Like it, 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 despite it was very much more close than going to New Zealand, which is a very long trip. But uh, I think that that happens with, with when you know, I, I think it. It's not only not that we have a, a global middle class; is that we don't even have a Latin American middle class. Like I think in different countries, like it has kind some kind of attitudes. I think in some ways you, you still could see like uh, uh, some elements of, of that culture. For example, like anime. Anime was really important. Although in in, in some countries like Peru. 
uh, anime is, is also very popular because it, since the televisions didn't have much money to to make uh, you know their own TV shows, so they uh, put anime in in, in the in, in their station. So uh, here, even the police uh, makes memes with Pokemon. So it's 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 very weird and, and surrealist in some way that what we are seeing now. But it it has to do that 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 the the issue that for Latin America, since it didn't have the many resources, it had to import a lot of things, and that same is happening now with the uh, with uh, now we are seeing Korean uh, telenovelas or or. Turkish telenovelas or Indian telenovelas, so so these sub operas from 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 other countries, and we are are going in some way the multipolar world that, that some political scientists spoke is already happening in Latin America. We are already you know uh, uh, having different kind of influence that that, that uh, at least culturally, maybe and in, in, in the case of politically, China already has an important presence. So in some ways, Latin America is all, is already living the multipolar world. And I think that's a, a kind of an interesting reflection for people to have. Well, I think the multipolarity is interesting. One of the one of the things I noticed in northern Mexico was like explicit racism was pretty taboo in northern Mexico. I mean, you did meet occasionally like Nazis, but in general, um, it was not okay. But there was a strong anti-Chinese sentiment. Um largely because of the fact that they were viewed as taking local jobs, which I would always laugh at. I mean, the reason why I would laugh is my students would be like, well, why do Americans think that of us? And I'd be like, well, you say a lot of the same things about the Chinese. So like, um, why do you think you feel about it that way for the Chinese? Is it true? Um, and that's a result of, of, of kind of multipolarity. I mean, those ethnic tensions are kind of an, I mean, you know, from a, I'm not wearing my left wing hat now, Camilo, I'm wearing my, um, my, uh, anthropologist hat, but like, when, like when, whenever cultures start to integrate, there's an initial hostility before you come up with a common culture that can bridge everything. Um, and so I think, I think there's a lot of that in Latin America, but I also think, you know, Latin America has been, better than anglo north america at blending just objectively true religiously culturally racially etc i mean that's like it's 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 kind of um it's fascinating when you like go to a market and say um medellin are in um uh district federal mexico and you you realize how truly international not just it is now but it's always been going back you know two three hundred years and that the look then that there are so many different indigenous groups that are contributing to this culture too um particularly if you if you if you go to oaxaca or or you go to the yucatan and get out of like the parts that are obviously made for americans to be tourists um and you really see it and I say that because I think I think one of the things that we have to realize is that um, if you want to take an anti-imperial, anti-colonial attitude in, in you know in regards to the United States, if you're an American leftist, you also have to deal with the fact that the states that you're 
talking about are having similar internal struggles. And that there's, you know, settler colonial baggage to be to be settled out in in Mexico, in Peru, etc. And that um in some ways a very a very simplistic worldview could lead you to to misunderstand or take a very simple notion of, you know, like the left, you know, whatever, whatever the left wing faction of, of a country in Latin America does is good, which is you and I both know doesn't have a, a super strong history of playing out well. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think the other thing is, is um, a lot of Americans don't understand the factional alliances in Latin American politics because they often just don't make sense to them. Like, you know, you mentioned to me that sometimes more libertarian thinkers are often cited with Marxists against nationalists in Latin America. And, you know, that's not the that that seems so completely foreign to the United States where libertarians often just become nationalist. Yeah, it's uh, it's very curious the, the Peruvian case, and I think it 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 it, it will be. Now that you mention libertarianism, um, it, well, it's not particularly necessary someone that is from Latin America, but uh, there is a channel which is called Visual Politic, and it's done by a, a Spanish guy who lives in in Prague, and his friends that live that are Spanish but live in Spain, and it's quite popular in in. In Latin America, because there there is not that many political shows in, in in Spanish, and they come from libertarianism, so they are not very radical now. But they say that at one point they were kind of radical, but they have a very interesting kind of, of analysis, and I think they are an outlier because the Spanish libertarians are much more right wing than the American libertarians. So in I I, I say to to. The libertarians that listen to the show, there are not that many libertarians to save in Spain. It's really nonsense that they talk. But they are really interesting because they are not dogmatically in, in the sense that they come from that background, but they, they, in that sense, they are kind of more objective because they are not, you know, like they don't push for a party. And in the case of, of one of the founders, he doesn't even live in. In, in his own country, so he he has a more independent view even to, to talk about Spain because he no longer lives there and has kind of, sometimes I think living in our part makes you see the, the ways in a more independent way in some sense. I think it's interesting because I think um, the way that, that, that the, I think that the, the libertarians have very misunderstood Latin America. And the kind of libertarians that, you know, sometimes uh, both Kirit and Reason sometimes try to reach out in Latin America are very right-wing and are, you know, generally wide and rich. And, and they are not going to have any kind of, of, of presence of, of, you know, of, you know of, of being able to build a mass movement or anything. But I think people like like Bissell Politics, is, the channel is going to, it's interesting because they are very poor immigrant, for example. And that is something that is very contrary to, to, to Spanish libertarians, which are very anti-immigrant. And, and that, I think that's an interesting kind of, uh, of, of, of issue. And, and they have very interesting things to say once time from time. But I, I think, for example, one of the bigger mistakes that, for example, a lot of, of libertarians make is about Venezuela. Uh, not, not Venezuela, but more about, 
I think Venezuela too, but but in Somalia is where I think they make their biggest mistakes because Somalia is is many things. It's not anarchy, uh, and for example, Eralto is a place where you could uh, as, as even as I I I I think that leftists could find a lot of things to love about about El Alto. I think also the Rotarians can find a lot of things to love about El Alto because literally it has been described by many economists as the freest market in the entire world. So basically the people selling on the streets of El Alto haven't paid taxes no, no one time in their whole lifetime. So they uh, and it's very curious because a lot of times it says, you know, like uh, you know, a lot of Times this is linked to egoism, so they don't want to pay taxes. They don't care about the communities. But as according to an article in the Economist, actually, the neighborhood associations build the roads, build the schools. So it's not that they uh, they just want to hoard for themselves, but they want to help their communities. But they know the government is corrupt, so they are doing it on their own. And I think that's something interesting. I think one could be a leftist or a libertarian, but there are a lot of things happening in Latin America, and I think one could learn about um, uh, about this kind of the love. It's other thing that I think is interesting, uh, I was mentioning anime. So in, in Chile, in the protest, a lot of, there, there was a brigade that was called the the the, the anti-fascist otaku brigade. So there was people dressed as, as anime characters or, or, or with uh, or with pamphlets that, that make reference to anime, and, and they were really interesting because they bring a lot of color to the protests. And I think sometimes that's sometimes, I feel that a lot of times in the U.S., like the protests, you, you see the, the answer pancard and, and, you know, all with their, you know, like flags or their kind of uh, of sectarian group. Like and, and, and for a lot of people, that could be boring. But in Chile, in the manifestation in Santiago, it... That manifestation reached one million people. As, as some has has you know like tried to make the the analysis of how many people really came at one point. So they really took off the streets, and and I think that is only something that it was built by trying to to have a larger appeal, not not trying to like uh, you know like disincentivize like only the, the the kind of you know like orthodox Marxists to to go to some event, but you know try to appeal to to the masses to to try to make a, a, a real mass movement. But because I sometimes hear that in in the U.S. that that people like uh, talk about. Um, about uh, mass movements lately, and but certainly uh, sometimes the people that are talking about that are actually quite sectarian. For example, in Peru, one of the laws, uh, the labor laws that was defeated, was defeated actually with the help of anarchists, and they were very useful. That, uh, and I could say a lot of bad things about anarchists here because I think in some ways they have, uh, in other protests, they have a, a lot of. Uh, in one protest, they throw explosives in the middle of the protest. So basically, the protest had to stop because, like, there were really uh, ex- the explosion in the middle of the protest. But in that case, like, for defeating the law, they were very uh, uh, fundamental to kind of uh, try to to n- make sure that no party like became uh, the focus point, and the the protest should be about defeating this labor law. So. 
the labor law was basically an interlaw, so uh, printers will no longer uh, be be able to to gain any money for for internships. So I, I know in, in the US it's a different reality, but in Peru, which is a country that has generally people have low income, uh, being working and not gaining anything of money, it's uh, it's a much more tricky thing with the US because like. The, the the economies of families are, are, are in some cases much more uh, fragile than, than in the US. So uh, I think it's in some sense you go in, in Latin America understand how to work with particular groups that at some point are useful, even if they may know have don't have the same um, horizons as you. And I think that's a really interesting. I think something that a particular American leftist could could learn a lot. All right. Yeah, I, I would agree. Um, and um, would, what would you think that, what do you think, <laughs> here I am asking you a question on your show, but what do you what do you make of the fact that the internet has removed a lot of barriers to this knowledge? I mean, real barriers, because, you know, I could find someone to talk to, like right now, in Peru or Bolivia, to give me a kind of local... Um, perspective, one of the things I've noticed is that even though this is available, people don't do it. Now, I get that there's language barriers, although a lot of people in the world speak English. Um, And also a lot of people in the world speak Spanish, and a lot of Americans actually even speak Spanish if they speak any other language than English. But it's... uh, What do you make of that? Why do you think there's so little like actual inquiry into this stuff and that, maybe that's the last thing that i want to discuss with you about but what do you make yeah i mean it's it's interesting what you mentioned i think it, it it's true what you are saying is completely true uh i think it also has you know like when i started like in podcasting it was you know as you mentioned uh probably uh the people that, that listen to you frequently know that you have mentioned that libertarian podcasts were were a thing at one point, so actually, that was my my introduction to 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 podcasting because, like, someone actually a, a libertarian friend of mine said, uh, "You know, does anybody wants to, to? I I I don't have enough guesses to 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 because it was a multiple like on, on Google on Google chats. It was a live transmission. So um, I I joined, and at at that point, I think. Uh, my English wasn't that good, but I think with, with practice, it has become better. Um, that being said, I, I think in, in some way, libertarians understood, at least at the beginning, to try to, 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 try to, to be in some ways connected. Uh, but, you know, it soon faded and, and it, it, it became like way into to a very dark place some of the, of, of the libertarian movement. But, uh, for for me particularly, I, I want to connect with with people because I, I'm a very kind of heterodox leftist, and at the same time, I'm a heterodox libertarian. I'm I'm, I'm interested in in, in kind of, uh, of, of of forms of as I have said, you know, solidarity, communalism. At the same time, and how in Latin America, particularly my experience, I have seen how sometimes you know markets can be a, a disruptive force and and create change in a positive way. Um, that maybe that is not necessarily the position everywhere, but I have seen you know people with uh, that are making arguments similar to me much more lately, even 
in 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 elements of the Marxist left, which is I I didn't expect that to to happen. But a lot of people like for maybe for reading uh, Bukharin are, are saying things that that are really um, interesting to to me. And I think what what you mentioned about the 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 the, the contact with people on the war, I think sometimes uh, travel helps a lot. But the problem is that that the the that is still difficult, particularly for people in the third war, to 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 get a passport, which could sound very strange. So I could uh, count a, a, a story related to me. So uh, my my cousin works as a producer for a TV show. So it's the longest running, I think, TV show in in Peru because it, it was more than two years, I think. It's a cultural show, and and the the host of the show applied to a US visa like 10 times and he was rejected 10 times. So if 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 a TV show host is, is denied a US visa, a US tourist visa, you could understand that a lot of people are going to be denied a, a US tourist visa. So I mean I I understand that you are saying that 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 you know like language shouldn't be a barrier, but I also understand why people uh you know, maybe don't feel that comfortable talking in another language, particularly if they haven't like been able to practice it. In my case, you know, my my podcasting became a, a way to practice my English because obviously here in Peru, like everyone speaks in Spanish. So, uh, and and I think sometimes it, I I, I understand that we are connected, and, and and but at the same time, I understand that that there is a part that that. That wants to 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 still keep us apart. I think we should try to to do more about this kind of of connections, and and it's been interesting because I I, I have tried to to reach out to to different people, uh, different countries to try to talk about different kind of experiences, and different kind of of, of views that I think uh, kind of uh, try to enrich our way to to see the war. Mm, yes. I would agree with that, and I think that's that's a that's kind of a, my take on the way forward is is a, a slightly more integrated world. And I say this in a moment where I think um, between the viruses and everything else, people are going to be given, including leftists, are going to be given to kinds of soft, soft to hard nationalism. So um, let's hope that 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 this is a counterforce from that direction. Yes, I think we could leave it here. Do you want to say something else before we leave? Well, no, that's really what I... I enjoyed this conversation. I, I always feel a little weird when I'm asked to talk about the broader spectrum of Latin America because, like I said, I know more about it than most people from the United States, but that's not a lot. Um... um I know, like, I know a lot more about Mexico. Um, and the one thing I can, I can say about that is that um, I do feel that, that people in the Americas who feel like America, the, you know, Anglo North Americans, particularly in the States, but really also Canadians, don't really understand them. They're right. We don't. <laughs> so, um, and, and that's despite the fact that, you know, we're what the second most populous Latino country if <laughs> in the world. I was reading that the other day. I was like, oh, there's more Spanish speakers in the United States than there is in any country in Latin America other than Mexico. 
interesting. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I think it's, it has been a really great conversation. So I hope that people have enjoyed this. Uh, try to to, to to deal with different topics uh, about Latin America. Um, and I hope that people could, could keep hearing you in, in, in both books and, and and model science, you're really saying some interesting things that always are thoughtful and that that, that I think are really important to hear. Uh, so thanks so much, uh, Derek. It has been great talking to you. Thank you. It's been great talking to you too. <laughs>